Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 35. Book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 35. If you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in front of you under the seat. I encourage you to open it up to page 772 with, uh, with us. Um, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, put him in the midst of them, and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For there two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one, uh, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for me, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he paid the debt. He should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Gracious and merciful God, we do not and cannot live by bread alone, but we desperately need every word that comes from your mouth. Would you make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may truly nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ? Our Lord, the bread of heaven. Amen. We're covering a whole chapter, so I'm going to jump right in. Um, 
If you think about the disciple by the name of Peter here that we've been walking with on and off, um, we see him as a spokesman, as a leader uh, among the disciples. And it is indeed possible, and we see clear hints of jealousy amongst other disciples. Now, Peter is the one uh, who goes out of his way and walks on water. He's the one to whom the Lord God revealed that Jesus was the Son of, was the Christ, Son of the living God. And he was among the three, along with James and John, who was taken up in that culminating point, Mount of Transfiguration. And last week when Pastor Eugene preached, it was to Peter that the temple tax collectors came, although Judas Iscariot was probably the treasurer. It was to him that they came and asked of him about the taxes, whether their master pays or not. So even outsiders recognized Peter as a leader amongst them. There's a connection here in the passage um, that we just read through, especially in the first six verses, chapter 18, and what chapter 17 ends with. There, though Jesus knows that he's the Son of God and he doesn't need to pay any temple taxes, in his humility, he paid. He didn't have to. Out of all people, he didn't have to. He was God himself. He was the Son of God. But he chose to humble himself. And even right before that passage, Jesus, for the second time, told his disciples about what was going to happen to him, that he's going to be betrayed, handed over. He's going to die, and on the third day, be raised to life. When Jesus spoke of this the first time, the disciples were despairing. You know what's happening to the disciples after the second time? When we get to the disciples and hear what they're talking about, after Jesus tells them about what's going to happen to him and what he did in revealing that he's the son of God, yet humbling himself, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Later on, you fast forward Chapter 20, James and John's mom brings them over to Jesus, asks Jesus to place the, her sons to the left and to the right. And if you look at the other Gospels, it's, it's James and John themselves who come to Jesus asking for such position. There is squabbling going on. It's a sad place. But maybe we've been there at work. Maybe when you play sports, maybe when you played sports a long time ago when you're younger, when you know that the coach is looking for whom, like the captain that he or she's going to pick, when you know that your boss's boss is looking to pick the next person who's going to go up in the ranks. You see, the disciples haven't really learned anything about humility. Jesus has been teaching them, living it out, showing them, yet they haven't learned. They care, they care more about themselves. They're thinking about their personal greatness, and they're competing. They're, they're, they want that spot. And here's Jesus showing us the kind of character he's looking within kingdom citizens who follow him, that, that they need to be humble and that they need to care for fellow disciples more than themselves. When you look at verse, verses 1 and 2, we, we realize that greatness in God's kingdom differs drastically from what the world says greatness means. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and calling to him a child. This is what Jesus does. He puts him in the middle of them to Showcase, let me redefine what greatness means. He could easily have raged, rebuked them harshly, but he 
Yes, he was firm, but he was gentle and he was kind. He began to teach them again what humility meant. What he taught aligned beautifully with how he taught. Here is the Lord of Lords teaching his obtuse disciples how to be humble, and he taught them in a humble way. And we just reference back to what he did in choosing to pay the temple tax, though he didn't owe anything. A child is not, the point of bringing a child and placing a child in the middle is not to show that, you know, whether to be sinless, to be naive, or whatever other things you may think what it means to be like a child. The main point is a child fully depends on the other adult. They humbly accept what is given. They know they can't provide. They know they need to depend on someone else's provision. And in so doing, redefines what really greatness means. What do you think of greatness? How are you living your life now? How do you try to be great? For me, when I find myself wrestling with this worldly desire, worldly definition of greatness like the disciples have been doing, despite what Jesus has been teaching and showing, it brings me desperately again to the cross because I know that my heart naturally leaned toward thinking of greatness like everyone else in history. Causes me, causes us to come back to the gospel again because I need it. My heart does not want to be great naturally in the way Jesus is defining. Something goes against when I hear that. In verses 3 and 4, we learn that the way we enter the kingdom is the way we live in the kingdom. The disciples were really concerned about, hey, who's the greatest? Jesus doesn't answer directly. Instead of directly answering that question, Jesus points out by saying, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He wants, he's more concerned about you entering the kingdom than becoming great. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus defines greatness with this trustful, because a child trusts, trustful humility. A changed heart from pridefulness to humility characterizes what a true kingdom citizen looks like. When we experience conversion of our heart, when we understand the gravity of the gospel and the power of the gospel, it breaks our pride and it makes us humble. Pastor Eugene spoke about humility before uh, last week as he spoke on the passage, end of uh, chapter 17. When we become Christians, we again recognize that we're sinners in desperate need of God's grace. We deserve condemnation, but we receive forgiveness. This posture of humble trustfulness marks the character of true kingdom citizen. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, said this, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is, to, is just to realize two things. One, I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and to no confidence in myself. Humility, as Lewis also defines, it doesn't mean this permanent inferiority complex. It's really about self-forgetfulness, that we are amazed by who God is, that we lose sight of who we are. It's not like saying, I'm worthless, I'm worthless. No, that's not a humble person. You're still fixated on yourself. A truly humble person is 
captivated by the glory of God and who God is that we don't need to. We stop seeing ourselves as primary. In verses 5 and 6, we learn that biblical humility reveals itself by not stumbling other people. Here, Jesus continues by saying, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Our attitude of humility humility needs to affect the way we relate with our believing brothers and sisters within the church. True biblical humility manifests itself in the way we relate with one another. And one of the ways that Jesus points out, we do not cause others to sin. Now, ESV uses the translation to sin in, in verse 5, excuse me, 6, and in uh, later verses, again, sin in that way, but um, I'll come back to it. If you look at different translation, it's probably a little more accurate or literal to use the, the phrase of stumbling, placing a stumbling block. So I'll come back to that. Now, when Jesus is talking about if someone causes someone to sin, if someone stumbles someone else to sin, it's better that he or she gets a millstone wrapped around and basically drowned to death. The, the millstone, you know, I don't know how many of you guys actually grind grains anymore. We don't usually, right? We get it all prepackaged, go to Trader Joe, Whole Foods, whatever. But back in those days, they either, you know, a person would use a small millstone to grind it with their hand or they'll have this massive millstone that like an animal, like a donkey or whatever, would just drag around. This is referencing um, the one that will be turned by a donkey. So this massive millstone is better. If you cause someone to stumble, watch out, because something like this is going to happen. It's a warning. Sometimes I think in our desire to not feel like the only one sinning, we get someone else to sin. Ah, he did it. Man, if that's the way we think, if that's what we've done, man, we need to repent because this is a great, great warning that our Lord is giving us. In verses 7 through 9, um, we hear Jesus continuing, woe to the world for temptations to sin. So when you hear temptation to sin, um, use that, think, thinking, think of the phrase of stumbling block, okay? So woe to the world for stumbling, for it is necessary that temptation or stumbling come, but woe to you, woe to the one by whom stumbling comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, Cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two be thrown into the hell of fire. Now we see the character of a person as being part of a kingdom and now how he or she is to relate with those who are in that kingdom, in that local church they're part of. And one thing is clear, temptation is going to be part of life. Expect it. You will always, as long as you and I are alive, we will, our hearts are going to continue to wrestle. The process of sanctification will continue, and you will be tempted. While there's a certainty of temptation, don't be culpable temptation. Don't be the one tempting someone. Now, stumbling block here is a metaphor for either temptation itself or an obstacle for an offense. Um, if you go back to Leviticus 19, um, the Word of God tells us, You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. So this is referencing that same language, okay, um, that ESV translates as sin. So let me read that again. Do not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but what? You shall revere your God, I am the Lord. 
We are called to respect those who are handicapped. At the, we are to treat them with dignity because we worship and revere God. When to take care, not take advantage of people, not mock them, not hurt them deliberately. That's, the, that's where we start. It, it's far more than that. But we are not to place stumbling blocks in that kind of way. And that's what sin does. It trips us on our way to live for God. And we're not to place stumbling blocks for others, those who are weak. Instead, we're to protect them. And not only that, in verses 8 and 9, we are called to commit so that we do not stumble ourselves. We should take care of ourselves not to be enticed by sin because, again, there is grave consequence. Take drastic action. Don't be just, like, lackadaisical. It's like, ah, it's not that bad. No. If you are a working man in Jesus' time, your hands and feet are probably the most basic important part of your body. You need them to work. But what is Jesus saying? He's using a figure of speech. No matter how important and vital something is in your life, if it causes you to stumble in the way you walk with God and to God, then make radical decision. Remove it. Cast it out. If it's a sin, then we need to remove it for sure. There's no need to deliberate, should I remove this? No. But sometimes you also need to remove gifts that God has given you. They're not bad in and of itself. But if a gift from God causes you or me to stumble and falter in our pursuit of God and righteous living then that needs to be cut off. That needs to be removed. Because at a basic level, that's become an idol in our lives. Jesus continues. So we're moving from understanding what biblical greatness looks like and how that's defined by humble faithfulness, trust, trustfulness. And here Jesus continues with the parable of the lost sheep. Now, you might think of the parable of the lost sheep from Luke, but here Jesus continues, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, he's, remember, he's talking about the little one initially with a child, but he's talking about just little ones as followers of Christ who are weak in faith. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The concern for one is not at the expense of the 99. I used to think this, like, if you are a business person or if you think mathematically, this makes no sense. You, you consider, you know, a certain expectation of a loss when you have a business and you forego that one or 10%. But the point isn't that Jesus will deprioritize the 99. The point is what? That he cares for every person in a personal, unique way. That he goes after the lost, the weak, in a unique way. Now, 100 is an average size of a flock in Palestine. And if a shepherd was missing, they're usually, you know, Shepherding with other shepherds and other flocks, he would ask another shepherd, please keep your, keep, please look, look after my sheep because I'm going to go and look for another one. Like for any people who grew up in the old days in the market co um, context, if you own a small shop and you had to do your errand, you would ask another shopkeeper, hey, I'm going to do this. Can you, you know, 
keep my business going. If a customer comes, sell it. And then that's what they did because there's that kind of trust. You're not abandoning your responsibility, but you, you have a need to do other things. Here, Jesus is using that analogy to point out, to reveal to us the heart of God, that God our Father has this heart for the lost. And what does he expect? What does he want from us? That we too would have that kind of heart for the lost, for the weak, that we too would go after looking God cares. God cares for everyone individually. He has a special concern for the weak, marginalized. He cares for everyone like that. And his love for his people is like that individually. You know, God wants us to imitate his heart. That's what Jesus is trying to get at to his obtuse disciples. This is my heart. This is the heart of the Father. Have his heart. Don't be so focused on yourself, trying to gain, garner greatness. But be humble. Serve. Go out of your way. Look out. Look for. And bring them back. Stop being so self-preoccupied. True greatness starts with humility and continues with humility. John Calvin said, by his own example, Christ now exhorts us to honor our weak and lowly brethren. For he, Christ, descended from heaven to be their redeemer, to save not only them, but even the dead, those who are lost. And it is unworthy to reject in our pride those for whom the Son of God did so much, for they're not, they are not to be assessed according to their own virtues, but according to the grace of Christ. God delights in seeing the lost sheep found. If you are a follower, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, then this is the message that we are to heed. Understanding that God delights in being this kind of a shepherd who goes out of his way to seek and find the lost and rejoicing that we too are to be like him. And if you're not a believer, you have not placed your trust in Jesus, he's inviting you. He's telling you. You are lost without me. You're lost in your sin. And I am the only way to the Father. Only if you trust in what Jesus did on the cross and empty tomb will your relationship with your creator be restored. There's no other way. No other gods. There are no other gods who can save us. There's only one way, one truth, and that is through Jesus Christ and him crucified. We get to the passage in verses 15. This is a tough passage. Jesus continues. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let me end with verse 17 there for now. Jesus shifts the analogy. He's been, he, he brought a child uh, talking about little ones, and then he talked about the little ones in the context of language of using sheep with a shepherd. Now, he changed the language from sheep, shepherd, to brother, brothers, family. These unintentional language, word choices that Jesus uses to make us really rethink, especially when we get in trouble. If a brother has offended you. So when a brother or sister sins against us, 
They're part of a family. And how are we to respond? He wants us to respond with brotherly love in the face of personal offenses. And when we are sinned against gravely, there is a charge. There's a responsibility that Jesus is giving. How to deal with... Now, if you read the verses carefully, this is about private offenses, okay? So this isn't something that happened publicly. Um, but if, if a brother or sister in Christ has offended you in a grave way, sinned against you, it is your responsibility as the one who has been sinned against, who has been offended, to respond for what aim? For what goal? For the good of the brother and for the spiritual health, restoration of that person. To gain that brother back is the goal. Because what does sin do? It gets us off track. It stumbles us away from God. Sin against brother is something to be expected among Christians. Let me say that again. Sin against brother is something to be expected among Christians. I've met enough people, usually young in faith, who have this radical, amazing experience of forgiveness, transformation, and they didn't grow up in church, um, and they go to church, and they experience sin, Offense. It's like, what? How, how could this happen in a body of Christians? Well, Jesus tells us, expect. Expect it. You will experience sin and offense. And as the one who's offended, we as Christians, we got to seek the spiritual in- interest of the one who offended us. And that's hard, Right? but that's what Jesus is saying. It can't be about me getting things off my chest. It can't be about me being authentic. I I need to be true to myself and bring this to that person. That's not the goal. If that's what's motivating our confrontation, one, that's not biblical, that's not in love, and that's clearly not for the interest of the one who offended us. But at the end of the day, the responsibility, the responsibility is on the person who was offended. You have to go to that person, knowing what Jesus has done for you. Remember what Jesus has taught about the parable of the shepherd who goes and looks for that lost sheep? You and I, if you and I get offended, You and I are the ones who have to go out of our way, find that brother in Christ, that sister in Christ, and confront them about their sin. Not so that you feel better, but so that they will be restored in their relationship with God for their well-being. That's what's commanded of us. But the sad reality of church in the past century is It's like, oh, that's their personal thing, or, oh, it wasn't so bad, or the opposite. It's like, let me tell you what you did with no love, with no real desire for their spiritual well-being, their walk with God, but simply for my desire to get off my chest, just dump on them. The primary concern has to be for their spiritual growth. The primary concern has to be so that they are not hardened by sin. The primary concern is so that they don't stumble in their walk with God. And this is hard. This is, this is what Jesus is asking of the disciples. This is what he is demanding. It's a responsibility of what it means to be a member of a body, member of a church. But if that brother or that sister does not receive, then you are to confront with other members of the body, take witnesses, and go. 
And if they don't respond, even when one or two witnesses are taken along, then they have to be confronted and disciplined by the church. All for the restoration is the goal. And by church here, I'm talking about the elders of the church who have the responsibility and the call to do this. And if they don't respond to the church, then Jesus is saying, then treat them like pagans and tax collectors. If you live in Jesus' time, pagans and tax collectors were excluded from the religious life of the Jewish community. Because basically you're saying, if you don't repent, it means you don't belong. And the sin, the biggest sin here at the end is really the sin of unrepentance. Because we repent. The goal is that they repent and they're restored and they'll walk with God. There are a couple of things about accountability that you and I in this generation, this time that we live in, we're not really good at. There is self-discipline. Someone offended you, you have to take that step. You can't tell someone else. Stop trying to triangulate. That is your responsibility. And there is a mutual discipline. If they're not received, then you bring someone else. And there's a church discipline if that doesn't go. In verses 18 through 20, we are encouraged that the church must find strength in Christ's presence when the church seek wisdom from God in working through these kind of hard things of church discipline. Elders' authority of admitting and excluding people from the church is what's used here in um, binding and loosing language, which is admitting and dismissing uh, members. Binding and loosing is a, uh, it's a language that you saw in the court days. So binding referring to the idea of condemning, loosing, and the idea of acquitting. So a prisoner will be bound, obviously not free. If a prisoner is loose, then it will be set free. Um, and that's the call. Like Pastor Eugene preached on this, um, I think, a couple weeks back when he spoke on Peter uh, sharing what the Father had revealed to him. Um, building on that, that was when he, Jesus was talking to Peter, now to the whole group of disciples. The responsibility to do church discipline is hard. And, and church, we will make mistakes. And Jesus is encouraging the church, the, the leaders, it's going to be hard, but know that I'm going to be with you. And it serves two things. To the members of the body, be warned that you will be held accountable. And there's also this comfort and encouragement. Know that the call and the responsibility to do church discipline isn't something that you took on yourself. It's something that's given and mandated by God. There's a word, I think Pastor Eugene mentioned this before, excommunication, excommunion. And that is the last step. And that goes into effect if the sin of impenitence goes into effect. If the person doesn't show penitence and repent. Refusal to repent of sin leads to that excommunication. In my years of ministry, um, there were instances where, not personally, but from northern tri-state area, there were instances when people unfortunately commit adultery, and it was just as clear as it can be. But there's something about adultery and relationship that really Satan does to befuddle the mind and create confusion 
they would just not repent. So even though they were living in sin, they were married, they have kids, and a particular gentleman would say, you know what, I love this woman. The right loving thing to do for someone who is unrepentant was to basically excommunicate them, to help them as they pray that they would come back, that they would be convicted of their sin. It's a hard thing for any church leaders to do. But the responsibility to discipline is given to the church at the end as the steps are taken. As you start privately and connected, corrected with witnesses and bring it to the elders of the church. It's never to be done or performed with a sense of retribution, no, but that the unrepentant person would come back to the fold. They are lost, but that they will be found as they pray and wait. John Calvin said that church discipline is the best help to sound doctrine, order, and unity. If you study Westminster Confessions, It lists five purposes for excommunication. Um, and it says, church censures are necessary. One, for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren. Two, for deterring of others from like offenses. Three, for purging out that leaven, which might infect the whole lump. Pastor Eugene preached on leaven and the impact of it before. Four, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. And five, for preventing the wrath of God. So if you were to summarize all these purposes, there are two main functions. The main concerns is for the soul of the sinner. And second is for the health of the church. Church discipline. Personal Discipline, mutual discipline, these are all commanded by God. Every one of us, if you are a member of this church, you are responsible to do this to someone who has gravely sinned against you. And it is what Christ calls the church to do. Some of us, we, in the name of being kind and being patient, we're too lax and we fail to discipline people, go to people, and tell them about the sin. On the other end of the spectrum, we are too severe, and we lack no charity. There's no real motivation that's grounded in humility because we understand the gospel. But both ends of the spectrum are not okay with God. God wants us to do this with humility, because we know that we too are once lost, but found by the shepherd. In these short verses, 18 through 20, we, we learn about special benefits of corporate prayer. Here Jesus says, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may be asked, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. This isn't about generic prayer. It's not, but it's actually in the context of church discipline when they're doing the hardest thing you can imagine. And I'm comforted, I'm encouraged because this sort of thing is hard and Jesus is comforting the leaders of the church. Look, when you do this hard thing to love the church, to love your members, I'm going to be there with you. When you are seeking their well-being, and when you're seeking health and unity of the church, and you are praying for this person, and praying for the church, I am with you. In Deuteronomy 17, 7, um, witnesses were brought 
to uh, confirm the facts. And what happened usually after confirmation was that they were the first one to execute the penalty for that crime. So that means in Old Testament, um, when eyewitnesses were brought to confirm whatever things that were being charged, they were the first ones to cast the stones. Pretty scary. But here, here's Jesus. Using the similar language, referencing back to that Old Testament way of eyewitnesses, right? He talked about bringing eyewitnesses to people. But these people are not the ones to throw stones. You know what Jesus is saying when two or three gather and pray? He's talking about now people who are going to be praying for them. In the Old Testament, the witnesses were the first to cast stones. Here in the New Testament, as Jesus showing them, teaching them what humility is, what the gospel is about, why he came, what true biblical greatness means, the witnesses that went with are going to be the one on their knees praying for the church and for that person that he or she would be restored. And Jesus is saying he's going to be there and he's going to answer. Let me ask you, during this season as we draw closer, Christmas is what, now a little over a month away, as we think about incarnation, how can we be nurturing this forgiving spirit in us to dare to go out, dare to be that kind of a shepherd, go out of our way to speak to that brother and sister in Christ not for your well-being, but for theirs so that they will be restored to God, that their walk with the Lord would not be stumbled, but that they would be restored and restoring. One of the membership vows we take when you go through the class and ultimately you become a member, the fifth vow says, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to further its unity and peace? This is what it's talking about. It is hard in our day and age. But then again, Jesus never said following him would be easy. This is what Jesus is asking. And then in verse 21, imagine the disciples hearing this. And Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And he tells the parable of the kingdom. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same old same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Seizing, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay. But he refused, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that, they had, that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, you forgave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he, could pay, he should pay all his debt, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother 
from your heart. I could feel this tension. Peter, disciples, jockeying for position, experiencing tension. They're very, it's like a motley crew for sure. They don't get along. They would never have come together on their own. But it's really by the grace of God, by God's sovereignty that God chose these 12 and put them in this one motley crew of 12. How many times, Jesus, do I need to forgive my fellow brother? Maybe he's thinking of James and John. I mean, after all, they're the closest one who always kind of followed him. So maybe he felt threatened the most, and they, they are just experiencing friction. Peter wants to know the limit of his boundary. It's like, like it, it, am I, is this boundary good? And he's thinking, you know, I'm being pretty generous seven times. It's like usually three is the max. Jesus, this is hard stuff, but is seven times enough? And Jesus responds by saying, no, 70 times seven. The point isn't the number, mathematical, whether your translation says 77 or 70 times seven. The point of that language is to say, stop counting. There is no limit to how many times. Wait, how many times do I have to go out of my way like a shepherd would and approach that brother who sinned against me for their well-being? Not simply to get off things my chest, but to really so that they are restored in their relationship with God. How many times do I have to do this? And Jesus told them a parable of a familiar passage of a servant who owed 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents is a lot of money. It, a talent is the highest monetary unit in that time. One talent was typically about 6,000 denarii. A denarii was typically how much a day laborer earned per day. So 6,000 days of wages times 10,000. Only a cancellation from the king would release someone like this servant from this kind of debt. Um, 10,000 talent might be perhaps even the actual amount of coinage that was circulating in um, Egypt at the time. It's just something that no one could really imagine. And if you listen to the word of the servant, he knows in a way that he can't. But when he hear him speak, he says, be patient with me. I'll pay back. He can't. There's no way. This is more than what a king would bring in annually. There's no way that in his life he could work. There's no way that his family could work. Even his town would work for him and pay this back. But he speaks, saying, I will pay back everything. Please, be patient. But the king was a generous king, and he forgave him. But right after he goes out, experiencing this kind of forgiveness that he cannot imagine, he finds a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, 100 days of wages. And if would probably take him maybe two to three years working really hard, but 100 denarii is something that a servant, a fellow servant, can pay back if he works at it. It's a realistic thing. But there was no real gratitude in this servant's heart. 10,000 talent that was forgiven for him did not do anything in him. And instead of showing grace and mercy that he radically experienced, he put this man in prison. And other servants, in seeing this, were just appalled and reported to the king. And when king found out, he put him in prison. You see, this servant deserved to be sold into slavery. He deserved to be condemned. 
but he received radical mercy. What was owed to him was one six hundredth thousand time of what was owed to him by another servant. When Peter asked, how many times do I need to forgive? How many times do I need to go out of my way? What is Jesus saying? Remember how much the Lord has forgiven you. It doesn't compare. Stop counting. Stop being safe. Keep going. Keep looking for the weak, the lost, who offended you. And go out for their spiritual well-being so that they're not stumbled in their walk with God, but that you pray for them, wanting their restoration with their creator. Gratitude is what should prompt us to forgive. It is our realization of what God has forgiven us, the costly forgiveness that he meted out to you and me that enables us ultimately to forgive. How does a person forgive those who harmed you? In a vicious way? Humanly, it's not possible. You can't. Can a Christian, can a Korean Christian forgive a Japanese Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit working in them if they continue to look at the history? Human history would not allow you because that ungrace would simply be repeated because humanly it's not possible. But when the forgiveness of God has been received and we understand the extent of that radical grace, only then can we begin to extend that kind of forgiveness to those who don't deserve it because we know that we didn't deserve it, yet we were shown great mercy. A merciful heart, a merciful heart is an essential mark of saving grace. Jesus here is not saying, if you don't forgive, you're going to lose salvation and you're going to be thrown in hell. So let me take that back. That's not what Jesus is saying. A merciful heart, a forgiving heart, is an essential mark of truly saved person who knows Christ, who knows what he has done on the cross. When you have received in your heart the amazing grace of God, that transforms our heart. And out of his power, we can begin to be merciful to others who has offended us. As a person, as we see the greatness of our sin, then we will see even the greater power of our Savior and we'll be led more to be generous in forgiving those who have offended us. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom? It's not about jockeying for position. Jesus shows us it's about humility. And how that humility is working in our hearts need to affect the way we relate with kingdom citizens we go out of our way searching for the weak, the lost, for that one. Stop placing stumbling blocks on them and remove any stumbling blocks that we may place on ourselves and dare to confront those people so that their relation with God will be restored and not just stop there if they don't receive that but dare to take the next step and bring a brother or sister who would pray with you in seeking that spiritual wellness of that person. And if that doesn't happen, 
there to bring it to the church so that ultimately they will be restored. They will be brought back to the fold because unrepentant sin needs to be addressed. It does no one any favor to leave someone in unrepentant sin. And that we dare to go back again and again because we know that we have been forgiven much. Let's pray.